0: Uh, Andy the Mandy, it's a pleasure to finally be talking to you.
1: So what's on your mind? Yeah, maybe can we just start with like, where did you grow up? Um, how'd you get into machine learning and software? And uh, just a kind of a brief overview of Arun's life? Yeah,
0: sure. So I'm a Bay Area kid born and raised uh, in the South Bay in particular. My family is still there. And after high school, I went to Stanford in part because uh, I think it was the best school that I got into, and in part because my parents, as immigrants to this country, were thrilled that their kid got into Stanford. Um, Plus, I also really liked the flexibility they had for going into tech and also maybe humanities program as well. So I was there for for five years uh, with the fifth-year master's, and I think the only real thing of note was um, obviously quite a lot, but I had a kind of... um, what would you call it, like a crisis of career confidence or something like that, where I thought I might go become a classics professor instead, you know, specialized in the humanities and ancient languages. My parents talked me down from that ledge a little bit. Uh, it was a big point of contention for a while, but I realized that money was probably a useful thing to have. And I, I sort of uh, segued from my double E undergrad into a CS masters, and uh, Google was my dream company, and I worked there right after school. Um, disillusioned a bit, still a good company, but when you see this, how the sausage is made some of the allure wears off a little bit after that very briefly tried doing a startup with a friend, but it didn't quite work out. I think it was just too emotionally immature. Um, the less said the better, frankly. And then after that, four and a half years at Pinterest doing different kinds of machine learning engineering, but yada, 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 I realized that, uh, my heart was not in that work. Uh, life is short. Time was running out. I wanted to work on something meaningful. And there were a couple of things that precipitated this kind of like major course correction in my life. Uh, interpersonally, there were some issues that I was having and then I realized some of the same factors that were coming up there were affecting me at work. And I also felt like I had kind of let myself settle in terms of my career and what I was working on. And I needed to make a drastic change and put in the effort or I was just gonna stay like that forever. So I think I made that resolution late last year, quit my job and was very immediately relieved to do so. Thought it would take several months to sort of bumming around, you know, faffing about, flaneuring in the park, having fun with mom and dad. Um, but I ended up stumbling across a company that was a really good fit for me in all the ways that I was looking for. A really mission-driven, strong engineering culture, super fast paced. And that's where I am now. I've uh, been here for about a month. That's kind of like the career arc. And then along the way, uh, I guess more personally, I don't know, various detours and different kinds of like spiritual traditions, especially growing up Hindu and then having access to like the Buddhist and Taoist traditions, regular Zen practice in a while, at least before shelter in place at the Korean Zen Center near my place in San Francisco, uh, one long meditation retreat, regular practice for a while. Um, and that's been like a big sort of undercurrent in my life as well. And then as a third one, I suppose, just like an ongoing engagement with literature and poetry of various kinds, especially a... Through some of my high school friends the southern and russian authors and then in my own interests a lot of the indian authors classical sanskrit authors the taoists especially their love of language and poetry and humor is really compelling and i find that a lot of the rhythm of how i view my life is is influenced by these poetic traditions especially so that's kind of like a winding introduction on kind of three axes if you want to call it that the career the sort of like the personal and then sort of the poetic um but that's more or less who i am hello
1: That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that. Can I double click on the disillusionment you had at Google where you saw how the sausage was made? Are you able to share more about what that was like?
0: Google was my first job out of college. And um, I mean, I'd done internships before, but mainly more on the hardware side. I think one at Cisco, one working on my own stuff and a couple of like research things at Stanford. But I, I had really idealized the or idolized I guess both would work the company for a while because NLP was at the core of what they did. And that was sort of the focus of my master's like AI and NLP. Um, I was working with one of my former professors, which was a total trip, honestly, uh, moving from calling him like Professor X to just by his first name. It's not actually Professor X, by the way. Um, And I think... At Google scale, there's just so much less visibility that you have into what's actually going on. I think by the time that I quit, I had a manager who had a manager, who had a VP, who had a VP, who had an SVP, who had an SVP, who had a CEO, who had a CEO. This was after the alphabet uh, split, so that's why we had the double CEO. And it really felt like we were essentially like a small city that was being managed as part of like some large bureaucracy. There, was, uh, there were like major currents of discontentment that I think are just part of the course at a large company any ex googlers who are listening might know about eng Misk in particular which is uh notorious for all kinds of like random flaming and borderline racist stuff uh, i think uh, the james daymore memo was like first either published or promulgated on that channel and that's sort of how it leaked outside um but then like i guess more I mean, less controversially, in terms of like big company structure things are just moved very slowly and Google had kind of like a really strong engineering bent, which I liked, but it also really felt like I wasn't really moving anything material. And I think the big one, like more technically was like, we were working on a cutting edge query understanding team. Um, like I said, former professor at Stanford, the founder of the team went on to publish the really groundbreaking work in neural nets. But a lot of our techniques that we were developing were just so basic, like handwritten manual rules, not even, like we had one classifier with one feature. Like that was the the furthest we went down the ML path. And as someone who really wanted to specialize in that work, I just felt like, what am I really doing here? Um, and it was a combination of those factors, I think, that led me to decide I wanted the total complete opposite end of the Google experience, which is why I tried doing a startup with my buddy.
1: So it sounds like the most recent kind of uh, life pivot you had, leaving Pinterest and um, kind of taking time off, Uh it was really all encompassing and I'm curious how writing kind of played into that. And Mm. I guess how you feel about that chapter, it sounds like it's an ongoing journey, but having found your new role and, um, and kind of having now a rhythm with the blog that's kind of established for the last few months. Like, yeah,
0: yeah. I suppose, uh, I don't want to make it sound more analytical than it was in retrospect, but if we do take that kind of analytic lens, there are, Several minor factors that contributed to me really starting and continuing to have a blog. I guess the first was that I was aware of the fact that if you just have a large stretch of time to yourself, it's very easy to get off track and basically do nothing by which I mean, you think that something is going to come forth and you're just waiting for a moment to strike. And I did not want to fall into that failure mode having experienced it, I don't know, like during snatches of COVID life when you just had eons of time all of a sudden being at home or even just otherwise growing up. So I wanted to have something that would be kind of a daily forcing function to account for the fact that I was doing or shipping something. And I thought a blog would be a reasonable way to do that for a few reasons. One, it was relatively low commitment uh, per day. Like there was no ongoing project that had a major deliverable. That was a first big access to it. The second was I wanted to push myself into doing something more uncomfortable, by which I mean, by temperament, I'm someone who really does not like being in the public eye at all. And... I think I, at least when I was younger, would be self-conscious about how it would be perceived, how it would look or sound. And I wanted to just get over that. And I thought the easiest way to do that was to actually practice getting over it over and over by putting things in public. The first post I shared on Hacker News was in part part on this vein. Like it was a, a minor one on to-do lists, but it was just uh, mainly so that I could get used to shipping something publicly and getting exposed to scrutiny. because. Um, as another angle to this, I suppose, I decided I wanted to be working on more important problems than Pinterest, which is a fine company, but B2C Ad tech is just not where my heart is. So uh, partly for that reason, um, I just wanted to get more used to doing uncomfortable things, which I felt were necessary for doing the important work I wanted to do in the future. Um, and in fact, uh, if I don't have that feeling now uh, regularly of being somewhere uncomfortable or unknown, I start to get restless because I feel like I'm not pushing myself enough. Um, so I guess those are a couple of different, act, like reasons for why I thought it'd be a useful thing to do. Excuse me. And then a fourth, I suppose, was that I remembered Paul Graham's dictum about writing being a tool for thinking. And I thought that I could certainly, like, like most people use clear thinking in my life. And I thought having a ritual of daily reflection of some kind would be useful. Um, I also knew as well that you could very easily play into any number of signaling games with something like this, where you start chasing the, the dopamine rush of being like the top x ranked on hacker news or having a certain number of followers or something like that so i decided pretty early on that i would just write about whatever i want to talk about so i i rarely if ever like check how many subscribers i have on my mailing list the last i checked it was around 100 maybe it's higher i don't know but i don't pay much attention to it likewise i don't really check my analytics these days um and that's been easier recently with the job because I've been doing a similar amount of like volume writing for work internally for just publishing and documentation and trying to build up that culture here. Um, but I suppose those were like the sort of minor reasons that I did it to have like a daily habit to check in with, to get used to the habit of shipping and shipping publicly, to clarify my own thinking. Um, in addition, there was just something playful and creative about it. I think it's such a nourishing thing in your life to have a connection to something creative, whatever that might be. Even if it's something really small where you're forced to contend with yourself and your thoughts and articulate some kind of vision for what you want to express to the world even in the most minor ways and then as one final like sort of coda to that uh, just to pick up on something i mentioned earlier about like uh being sort of afraid of like publishing or having some resistance to it uh one angle to that is i just was worried that i didn't have much to write uh, or rather that i didn't have anything that would be novel or interesting it would be like mediocre blog post number 3,000. And a lot of my blog posts are probably like that, to be fair. But one thing that I've learned to appreciate is that uh, even if you're saying something that everyone else has said, maybe you're saying it in a way that someone who, like, for whatever reason, can connect to it better. Uh, I don't think that was a complete sentence, but you know what I meant. Like, for example, like, maybe if I write about something, my friend will really be into it because it'll be something that I wrote as a friend of his or of hers. Uh, Or like with someone who just stumbles onto my blog, something about the way that it's shaped or a certain turn of phrase might just click. I think there's a, I would really love to see like a more, more of a universe of writers of people expressing and creating in public and sharing their thoughts. And that ties into longer conversations about like democratization of tech and central, like centralized publishing systems. But I guess those are the reasons that I started writing. I know that was kind of a meandering answer, but there was no single thrust to it. It was a bunch of smaller causes that were just pointing in the right
1: direction. hope that all my friends who reject my invites to come on this podcast listen to (laughs) how being in public is uh is useful Mm -hmm. um i am curious what are there any like surprising upshots that have kind of uh occurred in your life because of this i I think i remember maybe you you somehow got your job like tangentially through the blog somehow or um, yeah obviously we connected through it uh what's been like kind of the major like positive things that maybe were a little unexpected.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, and not to go full Palpatine, but a lot of things were exactly as I had foreseen. I expected that I would get some level of engagement from my blog. Like I did get two people who reached out like offering like, like hey, we think you might be interested in the work that we do. And though, although it was tangential to ending up where I am now, um, I think the fact that I blogged was shipping something publicly was a big positive signal to Evergrow because they don't know me from Adam, right? Uh, but seeing that I'm someone who ships things and can articulate how I like my perspective on the world to some extent and a capable writer, I think that was probably encouraging. And likewise, um uh, during like sort of the onsite people had read my blog the morning of and had some context on roughly what I'm about. And, um, I think one idea that I've learned to appreciate recently is like by temperament, I try to be really easygoing. I don't try to like, uh, whatever the metaphor is like ruffle waves. That's a little confused, but you know what I mean? Um, and I decided that if I am a little bit more forceful in how I articulate myself, not in like an obnoxious way, but like being a little polarizing, maybe, then maybe you'll find people who don't respond to that, and that's a bummer. But maybe you find people who do, and then that's tremendously exciting. Uh, I think that's also like standard dating advice, like these how to date for men books as well. Do things that are uh, might sell, tell some like cause some people to say no to you. Um, but I think that was a part of it as well. Uh, I was just myself as much as I was comfortable being, and. Ever to respond to that, and that was a big signal in their favor.
1: Have you continued to write with a timer? You mentioned in your post at some point that you'll time.
0: Yeah, it, it, there are two implicit timers. So, the first is that having a full time job and then a side project that is keeping me really engaged, I have about half an hour a day to get something out. And this is usually, unfortunately, at the end of the day when I'm like totally spent. Um, both of these projects are like driving me like full bore, and I want to just build my capacity even more. So there's that. And then the second is that I decided that I would uh, try to do time tracking more generally. I know some people like rescue time, but I think I was a little against their uh, cloud data model. And I ended up going with a German app called Timeful. Uh, Let me check, timing. Yeah, and it's just really delightful. I paid for it um, because I felt you should support small businesses where you can. And I think I do have uh, something that spits out there on how much time I'm spending writing per day. Uh, If it's something like much larger, more ambitious, I'll probably do it more formally and set the timer. Like there is a larger series I'd really like to push, but I also know it could consume multiple weekends
1: if I'm not really careful. Uh, So yeah, a little bit of both. That makes sense. Uh, Being busy is is a good constraint.
0: Yeah, there's really quick, there's that one saying, like, if you want to get something done, give it it to the busiest person you know, which has a nice fun logic to it, right? But I think the implicit point is that someone who's able to handle that capacity of work has built up the principles and systems that allow them to have that kind of slack and what they can consume and work on. Um, So uh, I'm making sure I'm not like chasing the lagging indicator, but I at least try to be as busy as I can in productive ways. And I find that the more I do that, the more I'm forcing myself to push and how I organize and Uh, even respond to email. So it's been really beneficial.
1: Where do you see your writing going? Do you like, um, you have these three kind of threads of like technical stuff, productivity, and uh, Mm -hmm. what's the other one? Ancient literature. And oh yeah. So many questions about that. But um, do you uh, see yourself keep continuing blogging daily for for the foreseeable future?
0: I would uh, like to on the one hand, but I also want to make sure it doesn't become something I'm doing for the sake of it. I think it's really good to have that kind of momentum of regularly checking in and shipping on a schedule, whether that's daily or something like weekly, I, I'm still figuring out. I do think that, I mean, I'm just going to segue a little bit into publishing as a whole, but if you're someone like a daily blogger, let's say you have a Substack and you make your revenue by shipping on like weekly, it's difficult to, on that cadence, continually say things that are novel, insightful, and deep and well-reasoned. I think, I don't remember where I saw this observation, but like over time, you tend to really drift toward the personal or like a culture war, just riffing on something. And I don't want to be that kind of blogger. Not that I really identify as being a blogger. I just write about whatever I like. Um, But I'm still feeling out like, where is that right line of tension between shipping something very frequently, but also not saying something totally trivial? And I think for now, there are still some fun things I can say on a daily cadence. But as I really start going much deeper, and this is sort of like to pick up an earlier point, what I really want to write about and articulate for myself is how I can be just personally as productive as I possibly can, not for the sake of it, because there are problems I want to work on. And that means looking really holistically as yourself as an entire system and how you're spending your time and sleep, how you exercise, what systems you have in place, just in terms of like basic tooling. Um, and those are questions that are really urgent for me, not only for my work now, but for the side projects that I want to pursue as well. So I guess the the snappy answer is within a few months, it might shift to weekly, but for now I'm really enjoying the daily cadence. I want to keep it up as long as I can.
1: Do you have a specific person in mind that you write for? Um, I know it's mostly for you, but is there, uh, someone else that you're, or maybe when you craft your email? yeah recent
0: posts. yeah Yeah. i mean like one of the downsides of being a little bit even a little bit self-aware is you don't help but think about these things so yeah of course like i recognize that i'm writing in public and there are people who are reading it family members read it friends as well my employer is probably reading it who knows so um it depends on what exactly i'm trying to say like that that poster wrote about perfectionism to some extent was to like my younger self but it was also kind of like an exorcism to the abstract idea or maybe a requiem is a more polite term, a requiem to the abstract idea of being a perfectionist. And I really felt like the idea itself had something to say and I was speaking to it, which is a little mystical. I wouldn't have expected I would ever say something like that, but that really is how it felt. Otherwise, um, it really depends. Um, Sometimes for certain things, I, I have like a certain angle in mind, but really for the most part, it is for myself. And I think there's a kind of purity of craft to it. Like, I think I mentioned in one of my posts that it's just so remarkable that Marcus Aurelius probably really was writing for an audience of one. I don't think he had any notion. Maybe he did because he was possibly a self-aware person too, but he was so materially constrained in terms of like how he could publish and distribute his writings if he even wanted to do that, that the thought probably didn't even occur that he would be read millennia from now by millions of people. And I think that kind of situation is sadly impossible in a, like a hyperconnected world like we have today, which has its advantages, of course, but I do as much as I can want to try to emulate that kind of uh, purity of vision. And there's a really beautiful Tagore quote that I love, uh, the Bengali poet, Rabindranath Tagore, uh, 1905, I think, or around in the earliest 20th century. Um, one of his poems ends, uh, only let my life, let me make my life simple and straight like a flute of reed for you to fill with music. A uh, flute of reed being like for a flute, for example. Uh, and I just really like that kind of simplicity in pursuing a simple thing sort of single-mindedly and doggedly, not to the point of sort of obliterating your personality, but enough so that you focus on something fundamental and then everything around you kind of orients to a higher principle. Um, So I meandered a bit. So the short answer is mostly for
1: me. I love learning about random parts of uh, the human experience that I feel like there's like these hidden corners to the web. Hacker news is like a good portal. And then there's like a lot of blogs that are like good portals. And uh, yours in particular just has references to all these like, famous people through history that I never heard of (laughs) because of from other cultures and whatever. Um, Mm. Where do you find your, uh, like your reading list and uh, information diet?
0: This is such an interesting question. I don't know which way to take it. Um, When I mentioned earlier that some substackers will tend toward like current events or culture war stuff, there were some specific writers I had in mind, but I also noticed the same tendency was coming a, a little bit for myself where I would think about, oh, I like this idea. Maybe I could write about that. Where did I see that again? Oh, wait, I saw that on Hacker News today. So uh, I do wanna make sure I don't buy into kind of like a, a monoculture of uh, influence. And I try to be a little diligent about that. If only for my own sake, I think it's a useful corrective to look for something a little untrodden. And as for, oh, it really depends on the vein. I mean. Uh, Sanskrit. I've been studying on and off for the last decade since I was about twenty, and especially as uh, someone who's Indian who grew up in a family that has a deep connection to that language, it really felt like wearing a glove or connecting to something just really deep. And what's curious about being part of a culture that stretches back through for millennia and more or less a continuous form is that the one hand you feel, on the one hand you feel, really vast and being like deeply connected to something that stretches so far back, and at the same time also very small and being connected to something so vast that stretches so far back. Um, and I feel like especially with the classics, um, there are so many interesting things you can pull on if you just start to go really deep into them, like maybe to put this in a more familiar frame of reference, like you might start with the big Greek authors, like um, you go with Homer, then the Iliad and the Odyssey, but then maybe you stumble onto Hesiod and talk about the Homeric hymns, and maybe you start with like the big playwrights like uh, Sophocles and the the Oristia was that him? I don't remember, but, and then from there, maybe Euripides, who's kind of like the off-brand Sophocles, so I really like personally. Uh, or maybe even like um, Prometheus found, which was supposedly Aeschylus, but maybe not. Basically, what I mean to say is like, there are these really rich veins of culture all over that have greatest hits that are pretty easily exposed. Like most people, even if they don't know about Basho or Issa have probably heard of Haiku. Um, And if you're just sort of curious about that and tug on it a little bit, if it's old enough, you'll find a really rich tapestry underneath. Uh, As for the influences that are more modern, uh, let's see, what blogs have I liked? Um, I mean, I feel a little uh, cliche saying this, but there's this blog called The Last Psychiatrist that was popular maybe five or 10 years ago and that has influence on some bloggers now, like uh, Scott Alexander for like Slate Star Codex, if you've read that. And his style is really abrasive. And frankly, I wouldn't recommend it to most of the people that I know. But he also has a really incisive writing on advertising and narcissism as a whole, which I found very valuable. Um, In terms of other modern bloggers, I guess roughly on the fringe of what you might call the rational sphere, but I don't really see myself as part of that community at all. Um, I just find that their writing is really interesting. Um, and then apart from that, uh, I'm not really sure in particular random sports blogs, things that are much more low level, but, uh, it's a tricky question to answer because being asked, like, where you get your influence from is to extent being it's like being asked, like what makes you who you are? Uh, because I think those things are just constantly feeding into you over decades. Uh, maybe I'll think about like a Mohammed Rafi song that my dad has told me about, or like, uh, Ghazal, or is just one of the Urdu or the, one of the Hindustani genres of music, or maybe I'll think cl- back to a random class that I took about the formation of the early church when I was at Stanford, and maybe I'll tug on that vein a little bit more. Uh, it's just it's completely cumulative, but I guess if you want to call it like a temperament, I just have really been interested in the classics my whole life, and especially in cultures that I don't really understand easily. Often when I find them a little repulsive as well. Um, because I, I, I'm curious about where that feeling comes from. And then I want, want to dive into something that I don't understand.
1: Does uh, does your family maintain like strong connections with India? Have you gone back there? Um... Yeah, that's
0: a, also a big question. Uh, let me answer a little question. So I guess starting uh, concretely with my family, there are various aspects you can borrow from another culture. There are sort of the superficial forms in terms of uh, food and music. Uh, dress even as well and language uh, and then those can all become like uh, much deeper as you dive into them right there's this notion of deep culture that doesn't really manifest so obviously so for example we could talk about food like anyone could make like a like a sog paneer or something like that i don't know why i use that example that's north indian i'm very much a south indian but to go with that a little bit more, I mean, there are reasons why you make it like it's embedded with maybe a, a culture of like certain dietary practices or views of what kinds of diets someone should eat. Maybe there are foods that are appropriate for certain holidays, or maybe you take sort of like holistic view about foods that are supposedly heating or cooling for the body. Um, I shouldn't say supposedly because my mom might be listening, but I don't really know much about that. Um, and that kind of deep culture is much more difficult to get at, which is part of the reason I think I've been drawn to the classics, especially as someone who's Indian American having that kind of deep vein on the culture and the ideas that animated it is just, I found incredibly interesting and profound. Um, but as a family, we've, uh, we used to go back much more regularly when my grandmother was still alive on my dad's side. And after she died and with COVID, we haven't gone back much, but I always find it, which is curious to some of my Indian friends, I think like profoundly moving to be there, not because I'm not at home here, but because I'm California for those listening, but because it's just a feeling of being surrounded by people who are maintaining the culture that I've had in my home since I was a child. Uh, And I always like universally, at least the last three or four times I've just ended up like weeping at the thought of uh, having to come back here um, just because it's just so heart wrenching to leave all of these constant reminders of something that really feels like home. Um, But it's a larger question of like navigating like a dual cultural identity or something like that. Everyone has their own balance. I think there is some, kids, and I don't know what your experience has been, and I'm curious with this as well, or if it, if it even applies, um, uh, some families try to really maintain very strict traditions from their like, place of origin, and then that backfires because the kids don't understand the logic for it because they only see the shallow cultural form. And then that means that they're built up this resentment or confusion about how you articulate your identity and try to combine aspects of these two cultures. So the way I like to think about myself, and maybe I'm flattering myself, is in terms of like the shallow culture, the manifestation very much someone who grew up in the U.S. I mean, I grew up watching Dragon Ball Z. I watched the Three Niners. I like Kanye West. But in terms of like my inner form or like my, my values, the, the deep tradition that I really value, and the lenses that I have for the world, they're very much classically Indian.
1: Yeah. Um, I love sag paneer, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> every time I go to an Indian restaurant, it's one of the things I will get, uh, unless it's palak paneer, which I'm still confused about the
0: difference well (laughs) one of them is spinach and i really do not
1: like cooked spinach it is one of the worst god-awful things in the world Uh, so good um (laughs) my background my mom uh yeah she immigrated from china um and i didn't really know her very well she passed away when i was kind of younger and um our dad really raised us our mom was often working and so yeah i don't know chinese like very just separated from from that part of my family mm-hmm. um so yeah i'm just like an american white boy
0: does that uh the chinese connection feel like something that is just like not applicable to you or something that is like kind of missing that you wish you had
1: in the abstract i say like hmm it would be good to like learn chinese and like meet these family and like know more about this culture, and um, in like an ideal world of infinite resources, I'd love to, to do that. Um, but so far, for me, it has not been a priority. And there's just so many other things that attract my interest. Um, yeah, I think person personality wise, I'm more of a forward looking person. And I tend to move around a lot. And I don't know to what degree my psyche is like escaping my past, but it just has not been um, something that I've really cared to even look into. Like there's easy steps I could take to, to learn more there, but um, yeah, it has not been a huge thing.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. It sounds like you have an answer that's good enough. And uh, I think the self psychoanalysis can be interesting, but it only goes so far. I think by temperament, I tend to be someone who's pretty sentimental and likes old things and looking at these traditions and where I come from at least but uh, there's also a limit to, like, whatever, wherever you want to cut it, what timeline Like looking back at childhood events. At some point, you have to live your life now. Uh, I think that's a really powerful attitude to
1: have. Have you, um, so you've been out of school for almost a decade now, yeah. for like seven years-ish? Um, Roughly, yeah. Do you think, how do you, how do you feel, like, Arun leaving Stanford with a master's, or to Arun now? Um, do you feel like strong, a strong overlap with with that person who you were?
0: Yeah, I mean, wasn't there that like NPR article that I mean, it was like kind of like a Buzzfeed factoid, but it was something like you're a new person every seven years or something like that. I don't know if that's quite true, but I think that the, I think, uh, my personality tended to be accretive. There aren't really many aspects of it that I've lost in comparison to being in in college. I suppose the things that I've gained are, uh, learning to be a little bit more assertive in how i express myself that's an ongoing process just temperamentally and then second i think that the sort of major transformative kind of ongoing process in my life is just learning to take on much more responsibility for the world and i don't mean that in like a mega maniacal way what i mean is that obviously our world is beset beset with really serious problems of all kinds even at the local level and i feel like uh I don't remember where i heard this dictum but it was something like those who can do should do and that just really resonated with me Uh, i feel like it's incumbent on me as someone who has access to enormous resources as someone who grew up in the developed west went to a good school has a well-paying career uh if it's incumbent on me to use those resources for something that is incredibly high impact and leverage and if i just let myself settle on like a mediocre problem for fear of chasing what could really materially bend the conditions of people on life but people the conditions of people on earth i think that'll be kind of a letdown so I think it's just been in terms of like a major change, embracing that more. Um, otherwise, let's see, like some of my major interests have been stable in terms of like language and classical language. Um, I picked up anything like major that's been new. Uh, I don't know. My rock phase was mainly in college. Uh, I guess I got much more serious about meditation, which I think was a really big one. I kind of heard about mystical experiences in literature growing up and I'd read about some of these things, but it was only when I dove into the practice very seriously that um, I felt like that opens up something really enormous. Not again in like some kind of like wishy-washy, like embrace your chakras kind of way. Uh, What I mean is just learning to really deeply look at your experience uh, has been profoundly interesting and I think has helped me calm down a lot more. Uh, Not that I wasn't already calm, but I think I have an anxious temperament and it just helps to notice that in the moment and then let that go.
1: What does your practice look like? Is it um, like 20 minutes a day or?
0: It, it varied a lot and it's kind of on a downswing, but I'm thinking of how to pick it up again. So it started as a, a ramped up to a one hour a day practice for
1: a year. And, that's serious. Um, that's a lot of meditation.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was, um, there are various, like I mean, meditation is something that's as broad a category as exercise and you can bend it to whatever you like. Really. Uh, I was very interested in sort of the Buddhist forms of meditation because I felt that they really suited my kind of like analytical, goal-oriented way of looking at the process of meditating and what it's for. Um, And I thought it was like very like sort of austere about it. And there's something about that that I liked. And at least in the Buddhist traditions, depending on how far you pursue them, the goal is something like enlightenment, which sounds incredibly grandiose. But basically what is meant is some kind of insight into how you are as a human being, what your experience is like. And I thought that was an interesting thing. And I was very curious about it. I had read so many of these authors talking about something that sort of feels like everyone's saying, like, how great it is to have this, like, apple juice. And you're like, what does apple juice taste like? I want to know. Are you making this up? So I was just really curious about that. And I ended up landing on a book called The Mind Illuminated, which I think is somewhat popular. It's a like the abbreviation or initialism for it is TMI, which really lives up to the content of the book as well. It's 500 pages. And I don't think it really needed to be that long. but. Um, The appeal of it for me was like it broke down the meditative journey into discrete stages and things that gave you things to do at each stage to go like up or like work with whatever stage you're at. Um, And there were experiences like while doing that, that I would call like non-mundane in the sense that you wouldn't really get it while just sitting for 10 minutes in like an office chair, for example. Again, nothing crazy, um, but certainly, certainly really interesting and profound um, and that eventually culminated in a 10-day meditation retreat, which was, I think, a little bit more intense than I was ready for. It was through a student of this teacher. It was in the desert in Arizona. There was no Wi-Fi reception. It was a silent retreat. And everyone there, for the most part, took it really seriously. Um, so it was just that. And it, I think it was a little bit too much for me. And afterward, I took a break. And it, I, I think it was kind of like a post-traumatic like, growth, if you want to call it that. But I was looking for a tradition that was maybe a little bit more grounded in, in mature practice and living in community and that kind of thing. And I eventually stumbled on a Korean Zen center very close to my place in San Francisco. And I really loved that community. Uh, I should say love present tense, but with COVID, we switched to Zoom and it was just not the same. And I think as soon as uh, in-person practice opens up, I'll probably go back. But the Zen style is very different. Uh, they don't have elaborate meditation instructions on what to do or like maybe I can illustrate so like in this book, the, the Mind Illuminated, it would talk about like building up the discrete qualities of awakening. And in particular, you might focus on balancing your awareness and your attention at any moment. And you might do this with a specific body set, scan to increase the energy level of your mind. And then after that, you hold that until you're noticing that your attention shifts in a certain way, which put, you move back to a certain stage and rebuild that up. In um, Zen, the meditation instruction is just, just sit there. So I think it really suits people with an analytical temperament because there, there is no answer that will be given to you on how to do this. And a lot of it you have to figure out for your own and just be in your experience over and over again. And this is related to koan practice as well. Um, I think a koan, like in Chinese, is something like a public seal. So what the metaphor there is like you have one half and the teacher has the other. So it's kind of like, um, I don't like like the teacher asking for a password and you produce the password through your meditation. So, for example, like one classic one would be like, uh, what is a good, simple example? Uh, here's like the intro one from this school. Like, they will ask you, like, when is sugar sweet? Um, and you can go down the analytic route and say, like, you know, sugar is composed of sucrose and it engages with like the taste gland. And like that causes an experience qualitatively in the mind, blah, blah, blah. Um, but no, the Zen answer is just like you taste it, or even better, you like mime putting the sugar on your tongue. So the goal there is you, you can always answer analytically, but the point is not to an answer analytically. The point is to express an answer through immediate action in that moment. Um, and that kind of cuts off, to use their phrase, like a recurrent analytic thinking, not in like a self-hypnotic kind of way, but like learning to engage more deeply with just your own basic experience. And again, I found that to be really useful. And then seeing the practice actualized in a real community was valuable. I think especially with a a lot of the online meditation community, people tend to go it on their own, lots of solo practice. But at least if you're adopting the Buddhist frame of it, I mean, what are the three pillars of practice or the teacher, the actual practice, and then the community? Uh, Most people only have one. So there are other kinds of meditation I'm kind of curious about. But again, I I feel like, and this is again, another big vein to talk about, um, people approach spiritual practice and that means what like meditation loosely for any number of reasons uh some are trying to escape some kind of personal trauma or pain some are trying to be some like the best version of themselves that they can be and i think if you do that for long enough you have to really ask yourself what is it for like what's the point of this practice is it just so you can ha- like feel really good for a while that's great i mean i guess you could do that a lot of people do um, and that's maybe been part of my discomfort with some of the monk traditions not all of them uh, by any means. Uh, monks that do really hard work, but uh, some of them just really try to escape and then sort of like shut down their connection with the outside world and try to get to some special place. But I really like this kind of practical view that there is no real special place. Like This is it. Whatever profound thing you're looking for is right now in this moment. Uh, And learning to deeply engage with the world is, I think, just a much more interesting place to be. So the way that I see my meditation practice now when I do it is to just kind of support daily mindfulness and the work that I think is important for, for the world. And uh, if I have more time and inclination, I might revisit it more deeply, probably go on more retreats. But for now, uh, I, I don't want to use it as some kind of like tool to disconnect from the world. I want it to be a tool for deeply engaging with the world. Um, so I, I, again, I, I'm giving these kind of wandering answers because they're very complex answers to these questions, unfortunately. But the simple one is that meditation is whatever you make of it and
1: just be really clear on why you're doing it. Wonderful. I read uh, a post of yours that uh, was talking about how great relationships are dealing with who the other person really is, not who we assume they are. And uh, that phrase kind of stuck with me. It sh- struck me as like, this happens a lot to me where I live here in Ecuador, where people make these assumptions, uh, a lot of it like based on like cultural and um just norms that like don't apply to me (laughs) and they'll say things and like give advice. And I'm like, okay, we don't really have a, have a great relationship here. (laughs) Like you don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm curious about, uh, about how your experience has been, uh, forming kind of great relationships and seeing other people, um, as they are and trying not to make assumptions, I guess. Uh, how do you like apply this in your life and how has it been applied to you?
0: Uh, well, the short version is that I learned this lesson the hard way, unfortunately. Uh, not to get too much into the the mess of life, but um, there were friendships and relationships that I, I could have made much stronger, much healthier if I were more comfortable being who I was and if I could really see the other person as they were. Um, as for how to do it, uh, I really like this idea of fundamentals, which I've tried to write about, not very successfully yet, but I'll get to it at some point. Um, and briefly, what I mean by that word is that in in any kind of field, there are simple principles that you just apply over and over. And the amateur kind of attitude, to, to borrow a phrase that Stephen Pressfield used, and also this one of my favorite Go authors as well, uh, I think Kageyama Toshiro seven done. Uh, the amateur likes to flit around from like technique to technique, like let me try this clever thing or that clever thing. But the professional just focuses relentlessly on the principle um, and tries to really deeply internalize these things. It reminds me of a I don't know quite how he put it, but there was this Tibetan uh, master named Chogyam Trumpa who was quite controversial. So he was like a really like heavy drinker, alcoholic, and in terms of his personal conduct, not at all what you'd associate with like a spiritual practitioner, but then in his his discourses, he would be incredibly lucid in navigating like Tibetan tantra or tantra, however you say it. So uh, why did I mention that? Oh, uh, sorry, I'm just trying to like backtrace a little bit. I think I mentioned that in the context of... Um, like learning that the hard way. That's right. Yeah. So he had this one phrase about how like the teaching in like a Buddhist context is very simple, but the point is that you just have to like sort of beat it into yourself the way you would work gold over and over and over and over and over again. And it's really a simple thing, but that doesn't mean that it's easy at all uh, because returning to that fundamental point over and over means constantly keeping in mind the most important thing and revisiting that and resisting the mind's tendency to flit here and there. So Unfortunately, I don't have like a clever answer for how you could go about doing that Zen practice helped me to some extent to notice my own feelings in the moment to how I'm feeling about like, if I'm feeling tense or anxious if I'm feeling relaxed or calm to some extent and trying to find a nice equilibrium where you're, you're alert to the situation without being lost in the details of it. Um, and then I suppose when receiving learning to just be a lot more open hearted, or at least as much as you can, it doesn't mean you let yourself get stepped on but if someone has like real like feedback for you, you. you Assume they have some insight that you don't have access to. Try to take it to heart, even if you can't immediately and kind of sit on it. Um, And then uh, when speaking or like reaching out to people, um, I found that I I, I think I borrowed this technique from like a This American Life episode. Something like if you are in a boring conversation, there's always some choice you can make to like make the conversation a bit more interesting. There's some angle you can ask about. Something you can focus on, some detail to get to something a little bit detail, like more interesting and meatier. And for me, I think that tends to be the emotional stuff. So like when someone says, like, I went to the park or something, I mean, there are any number of things that you could ask. You could ask, like, did you see a dog or something like that? But I'm always game to know the answer to that. But maybe, like, if you depending on how you know the person, like, do you like spending time in nature or something like that? It doesn't need to be so heavy. But I guess what I'm getting at is you can always sort of lean into, like, the what makes you make that kind of decision? Or like, how are you feeling at that time? And at the same time, you don't want to sound like some kind of like a psychoan- like psychoanalyst, right? Because that's just really creepy and obviously stilted. Um, I, I find that really like repulsive, frankly. You know, like that that one piece of advice, like to get people to know you like or to like you say their name a lot. As soon as I read that, I would just get really creeped out whenever I saw people doing that to me. Uh, and I likewise tried not to do it to anyone else. So um, unfortunately, I don't think there is a simple solution to, or... I don't think there is a clever solution to it. It's just a simple thing of learning to connect to your experience a lot more, uh, being someone that people will give advice to. This is actually a quality of really great quarterbacks as I learned from Bill Walsh, the 49ers coach, not personally mine, just from this book. But um, if someone is not teachable, then they're not really going to learn from the things that you have to tell them. And being a person that people feel like they can tell things to is I think a really powerful skill. Uh, And that means like not being a jerk for one. actually taking action on things people say and presenting that like personality-wise. Like person, personality um, and then again, to return to the last point about like, what you say to others, uh, within your capacity and the relationship, just delving a bit more into the the more vulnerable terrain of the, the emotions and the feeling and the viewpoint. Uh, I think that's really powerful. And again, I'm no master of this. I've learned this lesson the hard way and try to practice it as much as I can. Um, but I do think it's made my relationships with friends and family much richer.
1: Yeah. That's uh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Arun. Um, can I ask? It, would it be painful for you to revisit uh, the circumstance that kind of helped you move a forward in your journey of being yourself? Because my personal philosophy of of writing and uh, how I conceive of like my blog and uh, and my kind of career and self actualization arc is I feel like it's really important for people to. Step into themselves and express themselves, and I, al- I also advocate for people to to speak publicly and and come on my podcast and, and write their own blogs. and um, I'm curious how you fitting more into your shoes and expressing your uh, inner Arun, um, how that came to be. So I, I don't know if that story is and situation makes any sense. If it's just you know young and stupid, or if you'd be willing to share more.
0: Yeah. Um... I mean, I think there are parts that are chronic and some that are a bit more acute. Uh, let me start with the chronic because the picture of that is a little clearer to me. I think it's an ongoing process of learning to be yourself. And that sounds glib, so let me unpack that. There's like an Indian saying that you should be aligned in thought, word, and deed. And I think people are generally like, they feel like they're themselves and their thoughts and that what they're saying is more or less who they are, which is not a wrong position to take. It's kind of limited, but that, that is one angle to it. Um, and then maybe they'll talk a big game. Their words align with their thoughts and they bring that a little bit more into action or in, into reality. Uh, a word is something certainly more substantial than a thought. And then the, the real meat of it is uh, in action in aligning all three of those and doing what you say you're going to do or giving an effort. Um, and I think that part was missing to me for a while. I mean, I I wrote about perfectionism because like I said, I think I had that temperament, which I think is is common for a lot of people who are like highly academically achieving from a young age and also don't have much outside of that. Uh, which was, I think not quite me to a T I'm a bit more well-rounded than that, but it was still quite a problem. Um, and the ways that you learn to be more comfortable with expressing yourself and aligning yourself in that way is like one, uh, I think learning that a lot of people really don't care. And I don't know if that only comes with getting a little older. What I mean by that is like, maybe someone will give you like a comment about it, but everyone is ultimately operating from their own limited subjective bias point of view. And it took me a while to internalize that. I think especially as someone who really succeeded in like an academic class setting and maybe saw teachers as an authority figure, I thought like there are some people who really know what they're talking about. And there certainly are, but ultimately, at a certain point, you realize that you can go and do things for yourself as well. And there's no reason to, s- to think at all that someone's judgment of you is an authority by any means, even if they know you incredibly well. Uh, and having that kind of perspective and realizing that there is no outside and who you are ultimately has to come from what you see reflected in your actions, I thought, I thought was very powerful. Uh, the second kind of angle to that is, uh, I mean, for me, I guess it was a kind of breaking point of realizing that I was not acting on the things that were most important to me. Um, but learning to put into action things that I thought I really cared about. I think I just felt, I I feared for a long time that I would fail. Uh, I don't know if I ever articulated myself in this way, but unconsciously I thought if I were to retrospect, better to sort of entertain myself with the delusion of what I could be in a perfect universe than to actually try, stumble, have something that's like much worse off and then show that I wasn't living up to the ideal that I projected to everyone and most importantly to myself, that kind of thing. Uh, meditation also really helps with that again not in some like grandiose sense but in learning what your thought processes are like and seeing that parts of you that felt really solid are actually much looser than that and you can wiggle them a little bit not to the extent that you become a blank slate but you are more adjustable and adaptable than you think you are and then you give yourself credit to so i think the meditation angle and then maybe also not getting caught up in like status or wealth games Uh, pinterest stock is really tanked so i can't quite say this anymore but Certainly uh, in the heyday when things were higher, I found that like having a reasonable amount of wealth under my belt, wherever wealth goes, uh, did not help me feel better at all. I felt exactly the same. So I, that's an experience that I don't think I could really communicate to someone unless they actually went through it themselves, unfortunately, but it made no difference at all. And likewise, getting some minor notoriety on Hacker News made no difference at all. I don't feel any different at all, except just a little bit more comfortable about being myself. Um, And then more acutely, Uh, I'm not sure exactly how much I should say, but basically I just saw multiple realms of my life kind of failing on similar terms. Not that they were failures, but the problems that were coming up had similar root causes, which really scared me because I thought this isn't just like a work thing. There's a deeper tendency here. And if I don't figure this out, this is going to dominate my life. Uh, I especially, I think, uh, come from a family with the exception of some important relatives like my dad. I come from a family of men who are not very comfortable expressing what they think and feel. And seeing that as a kind of family pattern made me not want to have that as my destiny to the extent that I could. I mean, I love my family, but uh, I think the world is a richer place when uh, we learn to express ourselves. And also something else that might be more tactically that I internalized recently is um, in terms of people who are like are successful and whatever that means to you, um, really whatever sense. I think the people who are really worth connecting to are generally very excited to meet new people and to help people who have a sincere request for help. And they love helping others and connecting and learning. And the people who do not react that way are not worth your, worth your time. So if there's someone, like to anyone listening or even to yourself, that you feel like it's worth reaching out to for whatever reason, I think you should. Uh, Because if they don't reply, it's not anything personal. They they probably just get a lot of email. But if they do, it might lead to something wonderful, like our conversation now, right? This wouldn't have happened at all if you didn't reach out to me. And then it wouldn't have happened at all if I hadn't reached out back to you. Uh, And who knows where this will go or what it might lead to. But uh, I think having that attitude of just trying, really, it's just that simple. Just trying something. Over and over, step by step, as much as you can. Um, so I suppose that's kind of the vision of it. I mean, just to recap, like chronically, really get into your experience with something like meditation or whatever kind of body practice that you like, um, and also also learn that the kinds of things that you think you might like, this might just be through experience, are actually not really going to live up to it. If it's something really external, ultimately your satisfaction has to come from yourself and your family and your friends, and the people who are really important to you. Uh, and then second, just more tactically. Uh, the kinds of people that you really want to reach out to, they will be enthusiastic if you show excitement and curiosity and give them something that they can do. Uh, And I think that's a really wonderful thing.
1: What would be an example of a, like maybe a small example in your life of a way that you or, or a family member like doesn't express themselves when maybe they, they should in an ideal world. Yeah. Um,
0: I'll anonymize this slightly, but I mean, I do have some relatives who are just very uncomfortable ever saying what's on their mind. I think they, they are really afraid of conflict. And again, I, I have this tendency as well, and I'm working on it, but so much so that no one really knows what they're thinking, um, or they assume, like, they give off the impression that everything is fine. And that's okay to an extent. I mean, certainly you don't want to ruffle feathers too much, but if that becomes habitual, and that's the really dangerous thing, these small actions add up and become habits very quickly, and then habits become tendencies, and tendencies become personality. And then it becomes something that's very costly to uproot. Um, I don't remember where I was going with that, but like, I guess I've seen that tendency a lot. Uh, and like here's an, like a concrete example of how it might play out. Let's say two people are deciding where to go eat, and one of them has an opinion. The other one says, like fine, or like it's kind of noncommittal. And then they go to this place, and then it's not very good. And then the one who is noncommittal says, see, this is why we shouldn't have come here. So they didn't take like any agency in making the decision, and the decision was something that they liked. And then they have this place where they can say, Like I I told you so. Um, And I find that kind of an unfortunate pattern. And I I think part of it is just like in the moment, learning to be comfortable just saying, I don't really like that. Why don't we do this instead? And that causes like an initial bit of conflict, right? It's kind of uncomfortable to have a difference of preference with someone. Uh, And again, I'm practicing it myself. I want to keep saying that because I'm no master of this. Um, Maybe another example might be um, when you communicate with someone, it's very easy to assume that they communicate the way that you do. Uh, my tendency is very much analytical. Uh, some people really need to be like hit over the head with the message and put in, it needs to be put in really blunt terms what you're trying to say. Uh, other are like incredibly gentle and non-confrontational. Uh, and one thing that I've seen with some of my family and friends is they communicate in the way that they would like to be spoken to and not the way that they think the other person would like to be spoken to. Um, and that just means the message falls completely on deaf ears and goes nowhere. Um, so those are maybe some tactical examples of how I've seen this play out. I, I really do like that question, by the way. I think that hits another important point I'd really like to, to sort of get at, which is that it's really easy to be stuck in abstraction and analysis. And when you get into the world of action and sink into your experience more, you have to really think about what you're going to do concretely and what the next step is. And part of the reason I, I ended like one of my posts with a call to action to email me is because I've read any number of posts about um, you know some big life hacker, life change. And you're like wow that's great and then nothing happens nothing happens at all because nothing happens unless you take action and that means being in the world of the concrete where things are not going to go to plan um, but the more you do it the more you step into that unknown space the richer that world is